The reading's taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, and can be found on page 1171 in the Church Bibles. Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await, through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that as we think on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and what he's achieved for each one of us, that you would help us, as we've declared in that last song, to stand on him alone. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a recent trend of how not to guides, how not to books. Um, Maybe you've seen this book, How Not to Die, uh, which is about what you eat. Uh, this one, How Not to Be a Boy. Um, my, um, my uh, yeah, let's not go there. Uh, uh, by Robert Webb. Um, and then my personal favorite, How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids. There we go. Um, if anyone buys that for me, uh, I will take that very personally. Uh, for my wife, sorry. The idea of those titles, I guess, that it is to draw you in. You think to yourself, I don't want to die. I don't want to hate my husband after kids. So I better get that book and I better read it and I better take to heart what it says. Well, there's something of that in our morning's, uh, our morning's passage. See, here is Paul's how not to guide. How not to, as he says in verse 5 or verse 4, fall away from grace. See, if this was a book, be a very short book, but if this was a book, it would be how not to fall away. Now, I know as soon as I mention those two words, falling away, there'd be some of us who speculate, some of us who come up with all the 
possible conundrums. What about once saved, always saved? I didn't think I could fall away. Um, But some of us, on the other hand, will be spooked. We'll be thinking, how do I know if I'm going to persevere? How do I know if I don't fall away? But actually, if we just take this passage and either speculate or let ourselves be spooked, well, then we've not understood it. Because here Paul is not giving us a kind of theological conundrum to work out, nor is he just telling us there's nothing you can do, just panic. Rather, he's helping us to understand a very real danger so that we never, ever entertain it. Uh, I want us to see that actually there are two ways to fall. First of all, trusting in empty gestures. Secondly, trusting in empty guides. But I do want us to finish with, hopefully, an encouragement. There is one way to stand. So first of all, two ways to fall, trusting in empty gestures. Now, you might expect a passage about falling away to warn about the dangers of sin or the lure of the world. But actually, the danger comes from a very surprising place. I wonder if you spot it there in verse 2. Mark my words, Paul says. I, Paul, tell you, that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So you notice the danger? It's circumcision. Now, this is the moment, I guess, where everyone starts to sit a little bit uncomfortably in their seats, because we're going to have to ask the question, what is circumcision? And why is it so dangerous? Now, let's talk about what it doesn't mean before we get on to what it does mean. Paul is not here talking about the medical procedure of removing the foreskin for health reasons. Yes, I did say it. Uh, He's not speaking as a concerned doctor uh, warning against the medical procedure, just in case there's any confusion on that. Paul's not actually concerned about circumcision per se because he's circumcised. And actually, he gets Timothy to be circumcised in Acts chapter 16, Uh, because it would help Timothy speak to the Jewish audience that they're going to uh, minister to. So if it's not about the medical procedure, if it's not about the actual act itself, what is the danger? Well, the clue comes in verse 3. It says, I declare to you that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. So the link here is between circumcision and the law. See, circumcision, if you like, was the tip of the iceberg. Underneath it was all these beliefs around the law and how we get right with God. Uh, You'll see an example of this in Acts chapter 15, when um, we read... We read wait for us, in Acts chapter 15, that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Do you hear what they're saying? You cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. Jesus is not enough. You need this sign on top. And for the Galatians, it's like they've kind of traveled so far down that route. Um, They've started to observe some of the laws in chapter 4, verse 10. He says that they've observed special seasons and months. 
But now it looks like they're going to tip over and go the whole hog. See, the movement from Gentile to Jewish person went through this process of circumcision. And like a seesaw, as soon as they do that, Paul says they're tipping over and meaning that Christ is going to be of no benefit to them. Now, why on earth is that the big danger? Well, look what he says in verse 3. He says, you're required to keep the whole law. See, circumcision was part of a package. It wasn't just something you did, uh, but actually it's a, a life that you enter into. And because of that, you enter into this whole way of dealing with God on the basis of the law. And remember what we said a couple of weeks ago, the law isn't like a ladder to kind of prop us up and make us look good. Rather, it's like a mirror that exposes our hearts and exposes what we're really like. And if the Galatians do that, well, they'll only find condemnation. Here's what we said a couple of weeks ago. The law there condemns, but it condemns with a purpose. It is pointing us to Christ who will redeem us. But the Galatians are making the mistake of going backwards, of getting circumcised and going back to this process of being condemned by the law. So this is the big danger for them. Now, maybe you think to yourself, surely there are bigger dangers in the Christian life. What about sexual immorality? What about anger? What about greed? Or maybe you think through, actually, that there are bigger fish to fry, surely, in the world. Materialism, greed, or as we've been thinking about this morning, global conflict. But there is actually a more subtle danger than we realize. And that is adding to what Jesus has already done. See, all of us, I guess, will not be tempted to be circumcised, but we will be tempted to seek extra assurance, extra comfort that God is for us. And we're tempted to seek those things outside of what Christ has already done for us. I remember a friend of mine who um, years back became a Christian from a Chinese background. And it was a wonderful encouragement. She came to England, she heard the gospel, and she believed. And uh, we went to a baptism, it was all translated for us. It was such a delight to, to be part of it. But then a while later, someone said to her that you need a second baptism. That actually you need some experience of the Spirit which you can point to, and that will prove that you're part of God's people. And they even said to, us, uh, to, uh, to her, you're not being condemned, but neither are you going to heaven until you have that second experience. And it did her huge damage, because understandably, you know, who could blame her? Her focus came off of Christ's finished work and on to getting this new experience. And notice the subtlety of this. This is a very religious-sounding thing. It's not a bad thing to be comforted by God. It's not a bad thing uh, to seek, uh, you know, the experience of God. But when those things become the prerequisite for being saved, actually we're in huge danger. Notice circumcision was a very religious practice. It was given by God to His people. 
And yet, it was a huge danger. We should say that even good things, and hear me right on this, good things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, having a quiet time, going to church regularly, they are incredibly good things. In fact, I would encourage us all to do them. But if we make those things the prerequisite to us being saved, then we've shifted away from Christ and Christ alone. I heard um, the minister in the States, John Piper, speak a few years back about when he started at his church. And um, one of his first battles was very interesting. His first battle was to fight the no alcohol rule for Christians. Now, you might think that's personally motivated, but actually he pointed out that he was a teetotal. Uh, But he was concerned that adding this extra condition on being a Christian was diluting the gospel and potentially taking it away. Now, of course, there are all sorts of reasons why people would abstain from alcohol, all sorts of good reasons. But again, it is Christ and Christ alone that makes us his people. How not to fall, part one. Don't trust in empty gestures for salvation. But there is a second danger here, and that is trusting in empty guides. See, in verse 7, Paul shifts his focus from the believers themselves onto their teachers. Uh, In the weeks uh, in Galatians, we've seen that actually there's been some visitors to this church uh, in uh, Galatia, and they're saying you need to be circumcised to be saved. And verse 7 describes the danger they're in. You will run in a good race, Paul says. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? See, notice the danger there. It's like a race. And these teachers are cutting in on them and stopping them carrying on. I don't know if you saw the Tour de France over the summer. But I guess one of the things that may have caught our attention if we watched it was the lady who held up a sign, I think, for her grandmother... Uh, during the race. It was a horrific moment to watch. I was contemplating playing the video this morning, but I thought it would be too much. Uh, But she stood out um, in the race to show this sign, hit the uh, cyclist on the left there, and then there was this huge pile-up afterwards. It was a horrific moment. Uh, I think it was a complete mistake. But you can see the picture Paul paints here, isn't it? You're running well. Who's cut in on you? Who's held the sign up and stopped you in your tracks? See, the danger here is not just what we do or what we trust in, but who we listen to. See, these visitors to Galatians, they looked very impressive. In chapter 4, verse 17, he says that they're zealous to win you over. They would have been very flattering. They would have given the Galatians a deep sense of importance But Paul says that actually they're empty. And he does that by showing their origin, verse 8. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. See, they're not from God. They're not leading people to know God better. He speaks about their optics in verse 9. He says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. See, they may look very successful. They may look like the new megachurch, But yeast is pretty successful. It goes through a whole loaf of bread in no time. 
and yet there really isn't much to it. And verse 10, he says, look at their outcome. I'm confident in the Lord that you would take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. See, they forget that they're answerable to God. It's his world, it's his mission, and actually they're going to be judged by him. Jesus says, doesn't he, in Mark chapter 9, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them for a large millstone to be hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. See, the danger of falling here doesn't just come from what we do or what we believe, doesn't come from trusting in the wrong gesture, but from trusting in the wrong guide. And like the danger of circumcision, this is a very subtle danger, because false teachers don't have horns and red eyes. They don't wear a badge that says, hi, pleased to meet you, I'm a false teacher. They often have a Bible in their hand. They often have a sharp mind. They often have a very engaging manner. And those things aren't bad on their own, of course. But actually, there's a real danger when they take us away from Christ that actually we get cut in on like the Tour de France. And Paul points out that it is when they're most successful, like they are in the Galatian church, that actually we're tempted to let our guard down. Now, what do we do in the face of such a danger? Well, those three things Paul says about those false teachers actually are a bit of a litmus test for anyone we listen to, including me. See, verse 1, where he talks about their origin, it's good to ask the question, who are they talking about? Are they talking about themselves or their movement? Or are they taking me to a deeper sense of who God is? Secondly, consider their optics, verse 9. Okay, they may look very successful, but we've got to cut through that and think, actually, success is no indication of truth. Or thirdly, consider their outcome. Remember, God judges our methods, and we need to ask ourselves, is this person teaching in God's way, God's truth? See, they may seem very impressive, but actually, we've got to look beyond that and think, is what they're saying pointing me to the Lord Jesus and his finished work? Now, I get that this is quite an uncomfortable subject for us. I'm not naturally antagonistic. Um, I'm not naturally a kind of like to believe uh, that people are kind of uh, potentially going to mislead people. Uh, We are a very generous church, and I'm thankful to God for that. But that doesn't take away from the very real danger, does it? That actually there will be people who take us away from the Lord Jesus in what they teach. Now, it doesn't mean we go around pointing the kind of false teacher (laughs) accusation lightly. We certainly don't. And it doesn't mean that we don't work towards unity and being generous and charitable with others. But it does mean that actually we should be discerning as a group and as an individual. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, chapter 7, verse 15, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, They are ferocious wolves. Or at the end of his ministry, the Apostle Paul uh, says um, to the Ephesian elders, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. 
See, there are the two dangers. Trusting in empty gestures and trusting in empty guides. But as I said at the beginning, this passage isn't here to spook us. Uh, It is an encouraging passage because finally we see that despite those two dangers, excuse me, getting carried away, there is actually only one way to stand. See, here Paul goes into the positive in verse 5. Look what he says, verse 5. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now that word righteousness, you remember weeks ago we said it's courtroom language. It's when God declares that someone is in the right. And the point is that actually as a Christian, we are waiting the hope of that declaration to be heard by all. Now, hear me right on this. Paul doesn't mean that we're not already righteous. He's already said in 5 verse 1 that we are free in Christ, that we already are considered right. We've already had that verdict. But actually, there's a hope, there's a future element to that, where we're waiting for that verdict to be declared and heard by us and all. We are waiting for the day when Jesus will meet us. And we don't have to fear, because he will turn around and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so we don't need to find righteousness outside of Jesus. We don't need to be looking at our own works or our own performance, thinking that actually that's going to get us through the the final day. We don't need to be having special teachers or uh, thinking what's the next fad, but rather we're to be waiting, eagerly awaiting the hope that is to come. See, when Jesus died and gave his life as a sacrifice, his final words were, it is finished. And I guess when Jesus uttered those words, they meant something. It is finished. It is done. The righteousness that he won for us is now ours. And now our lives are about eagerly awaiting the day where that will be seen by all. See, the Christian life is one of standing, of resting, of believing in Jesus' righteousness, not striving for our own. And Paul here is actually quite confident the Galatians will see that. See, uh, this shouldn't be a sermon that kind of splits us and makes us think, you know, am I doing this or not? Because verse 10, he says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. See, Paul's confident that actually when you look at the Lord Jesus, when you see what he's done, actually we want to rest in his finished work. So some of us may be drifting, some of us may be tempted to put our trust in our performance or our achievements. Maybe some of us feel a second-class Christian because we've not achieved certain things that other people have. Well, there is a lesson here to not put our trust in anything else. Some of us may be listening to the wrong teachers, or we have almost instant access to every preacher around the world. And again, if they're not taking us to the Lord Jesus, we need to examine what we listen to. But I guess for the vast majority of us, we already trust the Lord Jesus. We already have confidence in him. And this is a great reminder, isn't it, that we will not be disappointed. 
Our job now is to eagerly await what has already been won for us. It's worth just pointing out, there are two types of waiting, though, aren't there? There's a kind of passive waiting, the sort of waiting we do at a bus stop. I don't know about you, as soon as I'm at the bus stop, uh, not that I get a bus anymore, but um, drive, yeah, have to drive my kids around. Um, as soon as you're at the bus stop, you get the phone out, don't you, because you're so bored. And there's that sort of kind of view of the Christian life, that basically we're waiting for the departure, and now it's, the job is to distract ourselves with the perfect house, the perfect uh, partner, the perfect Labrador, and that sort of thing. But there's a second type of waiting, isn't there? There's a very active waiting. The sort of waiting I had when I expected my first child. See, that sort of waiting got my stomach churning at the excitement. There was this thought that in a moment of days or months, my life would change forever. You start to make preparations. You get the overnight bag stocked with, um, in my case, McCoy crisps and Mars bars. You do everything. You make sure you're not away from the home too far. You don't have a drink so you can drive to the hospital. See, they're both waiting, the bus stop and the, uh, the baby, but they're different types, aren't they? And the waiting here is that second type, the active waiting. doesn't mean we're waiting because it hasn't happened, but we're eagerly awaiting it to be seen. Over the page at chapter 6, verse 15, Paul's going to finish... Uh, by reminding the Galatians that neither circumcision, verse 15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. See, it's as we look forward, we look away from ourselves and away from the seemingly impressive teachers. As we look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus, we look away from our own performance and onto His. And I guess the question the challenge for us, off the back of this, the challenge, at least for me, is am I eagerly awaiting that day where everything that's been achieved will be revealed? Yes, we need to take the danger very seriously, not to trust in empty gestures, not to trust in empty guides, but the way we do that is to eagerly await the righteousness to be revealed. Our Father in heaven, we praise you so much for the righteousness for which we hope. Thank you that the Lord Jesus has done everything necessary to forgive us, to adopt us, to bring us into your kingdom. And so we pray, Father, that we would be a church that sets our sights on that day and, like Paul says here, eagerly await the righteousness for which we hope. In Jesus' name, amen.